Welcome to the Good Bad Mad podcast, a show that's here to share the ins and outs of creative careers, connecting the aspirational with the experienced, with your host, me, Meg Ellis. My guest for this episode is Olivier Award-winning producer Brian Hook of Hartshorn Hook Productions, who create live entertainment, including traditional theatre and world-class immersive shows, including Amelie, The Great Gatsby, and their new show, Doctor Who, Time Fracture. We chat through his journey into the arts, cutting his teeth at the Edinburgh Fringe, and his approach to the theatre industry. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, how you doing? Hiya, how are you? Yeah, very well, Meg. Busy, but um, Good. Yeah, Exciting. what's keeping you busy at the moment? The Doctor Who one? Uh, yes, we've got uh, Doctor Who, we announced in um, an hour. Uh, Doctor Who is reopening on the 29th um, of this month, so all hands go on that. And we've got Choir of Man um, just in previews at the Arts Theatre as well, which is um, which is good, it's busy, um, but it, it is uh, good. And then Gatsby is up and running, so um, I was at Gatsby last night, which was eventful. <laughs> so yeah, all, all it really did things go well, or things go chaos. Really good version of the show. Uh, we okay. had an aud- audience member um, passed out, I think, with the the heat and the lights and the, the mask wearing, but uh, they're totally fine. But um, it was just uh, more eventful than a than a normal show. Um, but uh, the cast did incredibly well. It was really nice to see everybody kind of look after this chap and and um and do their jobs and yeah it was pretty seamless so yeah they're very nice but um so I'm, yes. excited, I'm excited to see the Doctor Who one I keep seeing the posters all around the city yeah it's massive it's I was I did a walk around yesterday I took um, some some um stakeholders around the, uh, last night and um I forget how big it is it's, it takes 45 minutes just to walk around it um it, it's absolutely massive so yeah no it's really good fun Oh, exciting times. Well, thank you so much for making the time to to chat with me. Yeah, no trouble at all. So so the reason we do this podcast is, um, so Good Bad Matt, we're all about trying to support people going into creative careers. And one of the ways we want to do that is trying to give accessible mentorship in any any ways we can. So we part of what we do is the podcast, which we talk through um, people like yourselves, um history and how they got into the arts why they got into the arts how easy it was how tricky it was all all those kind of different things just to try and get like the personal experience rather than the oh it's really bloody tricky that everyone (laughs) everyone says yeah for sure should we start at the beginning then yeah i'd love to yeah of course how when how did you start um thinking that oh i could maybe pursue a career in in theatre yeah um it's I've spent a lot of my career kind of trying to demystify it and and I think one of the reasons I I thought this podcast was really interesting is because because I've I've spent a lot of my time trying to be really open and honest about my my very strange journey into this and and, um, uh, as a young lad from from Rochdale um, and I don't know if you know Rochdale but there's not there's not really any arts provision or or there certainly wasn't when I was growing up and and Manchester was was the biggest city and a very closed kind of um, uh, artistic community at the time it isn't anymore it's it's completely changed but but at the time it was it was a really difficult place and and I had these kind of heady ideas of being an actor and so I um and and partly wanted to escape Rochdale um as as many young lads do and um so I went to Berry College um and 
and yeah I think it's really fair to say I was rubbish in school um I had ADHD and and dyspraxia and dyslexia and and all of those fun <laughs> ASD traits and and I sucked at doing anything academic I still suck at doing anything academic um <laughs> but if it was practical if I if I could get up and do it um then then I loved it and 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 so naturally drama was kind of the thing that that leapt out of me was because I felt like I could um yeah it was very practical it was very hands-on I could I could do that um yeah. and I, I was never brilliant at it I, I think I got a B uh, in GCSEs which is a damning um uh, indictment um or maybe even a C to be honest with you I can't remember um but I uh, I wanted to get out of Rochdale so I went to Berry College and it, and it was as simple as that there was no uh, this is the college for me this is whatever but I found my people I found my little paradise there where the tutors were just incredible. Um, you know, they're still very dear friends of mine and I, I still ring them up for advice or they ring me up for advice all the time. And and I, I found people who really saw that, you know, I wasn't this naughty kid that you couldn't pay attention, but actually if you just let me get on with stuff and, and build things and make things, and I guess I guess without knowing it, produce theatre, um, then, then I would do it. And I literally from... I was there from nine in the morning till nine at night. I would not leave. I, I just fell in love with it. And, and that has never shifted. Mm. Um, and I thought, uh, I thought I was going to be an actor and, I, I, um, and that was going to be the game plan. I went to, to audition for drama schools and, um, and while doing that, I I was flipping burgers uh, in Manchester and working for all sorts of hospitality stuff. And and um, and I thought, no, do you know what? I want to be closer to the arts. I want to see shows. I want to see what's about. So I started um, front of house at the Palace Theatre in Manchester um, and uh, with some brilliant people, some very dear friends and some people who've gone on to incredible successes. Uh, Johnny, who wrote all the play that goes wrong and uh, Joe Lysett, um, comedian. Uh, the, the three of us were selling ice creams and pro really you yeah, yeah it was yeah down. man yeah for sure it was a weird that's amazing yeah it's gorgeous gorgeous one of joe lysett's really early comedy routines is about one specific night at the palace theater um where a guy <laughs> drank a load of lemon juice it really happened it was very funny um and yeah and 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 these brilliant you know those guys but also you know some brilliant brilliant human beings and um and the UK tour of the producers was was in there. It ran for, for months in there with Peter Kay back in the day. And um kind of like 15, 16 years ago now. And um uh, uh, Robin Sebastian, an actor in that show, um, had some downtime between his cues, and we used to call him Man with Flowers because uh, he, he was uh, playing Carmen Gear, and he comes out into the uh, through the auditorium. But he had about ten minutes uh, before his cue, so he used to just chat to the front of house staff, and he was just such a lovely chap. Um, and he got talking to me, and I had shows going up to the Edinburgh Fringe that I was acting in, and he said, um, oh, "There's somebody backstage who thinks a lot like you do. We should go for a beer." Um, so we went for three pints of Magnus, and that was the uh, indomitable Louis Hartswan. Um, and we, we, I've known Louis three pints longer than ever in a company with him. Uh, and <laughs> and we out, out the back of that said we should work together. This this will be a crack. We, we should do it. And for sixteen years he sat opposite me, and and we've become best mates, and we produced about hundred and thirty shows, and and gone with it. So th so it was a weird route where I I never was. I was never supposed to do this, you know, mm. this was never um, the big pipe dream, but I kind of fell in love with kind of different elements of my job 
as I learned what they are. And, yeah. and my biggest joy is employing people um, and giving people jobs and giving people proper salaries and, um, you know, and, and, and trying to make stable employment for people. I, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, and if you could do that in the arts, you could do that anywhere. So, yes. And, and you, so you found your, your creative soulmate, really? In, yeah, in... yeah, for sure. For sure. Really? So what was he doing backstage? He was a flyman. Um, was he? Uh, yeah, with the most incredible voice, man. He's still got the most incredible voice, which he's, um, he's very, uh, uh, if, you, if you catch him at a karaoke, um, he'll be very coy for about 30 seconds and then it'd be absolutely slamming out bojangles on there or any lame is or whatever yeah he's got an incredible voice and, and he was always going to be a professional singer and 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 didn't um you know and, and fell into this game um with me so yeah and i think um we then we and we still do we have these big lofty ideas of what we want the company to be and where we want to go and how we want to do it um and we just egg each other off constantly. So but it you know. does seem like you guys do quite a wide range of stuff. Like yeah. I, was, I was thinking about trying to like how to introduce you in the <laughs> thing. And like I, I think producer covers covers it, but you do theater, you do immersive experiences, you do event, like you do a lot of different stuff, PR and management and yeah, we got a marketing company and a ticketing company and a pub um, uh, and a restaurant. Got a pub? Yeah, we got a little pub called the Farrier. We love it. Uh, <laughs> Where is this pub? I need to uh, come. It's, it's in Camden Market. Um, yeah, you'd be more than welcome. I am often down there um, causing mischief. Yeah, it's within Camden Market. It's Camden Market's first pub uh, and it's called the Farrier because it's where they used to make the horseshoes for the horse hospital there. Um, that is so cool. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the theme, what do I do? Um, the theme is that it's stuff me and Louis love and it's stuff that me and Louis uh, and the team now like we started out as two people there's 36 in head office we've got you know got casting crews about 200 people um so it's a big organization these days but it's still very much like what me and Lou and the producing team think is going to be cool um that, that's the consistent theme no I like um, it I like it yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Um, do, do you, I mean, do you, I mean, I'm assuming you still have like that little commercial head going, okay, this is, it'll hit this point, but it comes from that gut instinct saying, we really like this. Yeah, and we try, yeah, and we, and we try and marry those two things all the time. And I think like Louis is very much the commercial um, brain of the operation. We can kind of do, half of each other's jobs um you know I, I can do a bit of what Lee does and and he does a bit of what I do kind of creatively but um but together we uh, we kind of have that yin and yang of, of of a producer where it's where especially in the commercial sector you're trying to balance the, the commercial proposition against the art and and always try and make those kind of concessions is the wrong word but like the alchemy of it like you're, you're always trying to marry those two things um, yeah i mean you've got a commerciality in the back of your head otherwise like you're just sending money down the drain um yeah. <laughs> you meet you have a couple of pints did you take a show up to edinburgh together yes we we were we were already taking separate shows up to edinburgh so i was theoretically i was um supposed to be acting in three shows um up the edinburgh fringe in 2007 many moons ago and um lee was taking the rat pack up in for its first year and um, we did that for years and years and years and um and was he singing in it 
Uh, yeah, he was. He was playing maybe Dean Martin that year, um, and uh, and it, yeah, and him with a bunch of student mates. Um, you know, it was really those kind of student productions. Um, and I was working for a company called Understairs Arts, which went under. It, it, it bankrupted itself about a week before the Edinburgh Fringe started, oh, and um, and we all got an email that said, um, you know, there's there's no more shows. That's that, that's it. That's your Edinburgh Fringe. Sorry, pal. And um, and a completely crazy Australian director emailed everybody on the same email list and just said, well, I'm up for running one of these venues. Does anybody want to run the other one? And I said, yeah, go on then. I'll run, I'll run a venue because <laughs> um, uh, I'm an idiot. Um, and it was some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life. Um, but it saved loads and loads of theatre shows that, that otherwise would have gone under. And I still managed to rate a, one of the shows that I was acting in at the time. And um so I would act in the evening and then run the venue by the day. And I rang my partner at the time um, and, and said, you don't, you don't know anything about box office, do you? And she was like, absolutely not. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to work it out. Do you want to come up and run the box office with us? So she got on a train and, and came up and ran the box office and I ran the venue. And, um, and I think it made about 200 quid, which is the worst 200 quid I've ever earned. But, um, but it was... You know um, what? You earned something at the, the Edinburgh Fringe. That <laughs> is a thing in itself. Yeah. So it was, um, and that led to loads of other opportunities. We then got um, a couple of venues at the Brighton Fringe off the back of that. And we won the three weeks editors award from Chris Cook back in the day. And, um, and, and I think that and me and Lou met up a couple of times during the festival just to say, right, okay, if we were going to do this on our own terms, how would we do it? And, and, and I went to watch the Rat Pack and I loved that music. I was brought up on that music and, mm. and the music of the Blues Brothers, which we ended up working with the Blues yeah, Brothers yeah. for about nine years. Um, and and uh, and I deeply love that music. So that was something I was like, yeah, I want to get in on this. I want to help. And here's how I think I can bring it together. And um but our first proper show together was uh, the 50th anniversary of West Side Story. It was not a small show because um, uh, we were nutters and we were, you know, 18, 19, and we thought we were absolutely invincible. So we were just like, yeah, what's the biggest show? Yeah, okay, West Side Story, were, let's do it. You were 18 and 19? Yeah, I think we might have been 19 and 20 by the time we did uh, West Side Story actually happened. So, so we, how did that come about? You just inquired about the rights and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a chap called Greg Batsley who we still work with to this day. I mean, the the West Side Story was a a melting pot of people who are um, are still very much in the art, still very much working. That one that one project kind of kicked off a load of people into um, some incredible kind of careers. And a chap called Greg Batsley uh, um, and. Uh, uh, an MD called Jed uh, came to us and said, "Okay, you know, you guys want to put on a show? What about West Side Story? We love it." I said, "Yeah, okay." You know, and they were studying at the, the Royal Northern College of Music, the RNCM in Manchester. So we spoke to the RNCM, and the RNCM said, "Well, you guys, you know, are kids. Uh, we we can give you a couple of nights." Um, um, and we, I think we didn't realise that we were putting together an outreach project. <laughs> um, so loads of, you know, kids from Rochdale, kids from from. Our estate and people we knew got stuck in and and did it and and I think the RNCM cottoned on very quickly that this was an outreach project and said right well we'll give you a week off you go um, and it sold out completely and and it was I I often wonder we never recorded it I often wonder whether I watch it back and be like that was dreadful or whether I watch it back and be like yeah slamming version of West Side Story done by kids what a mad <laughs> what a mad thing um, but we're still very much in touch with loads of that cast it was a kind of a gorgeous. Um, way into the world and 
and um, I think the other thing to say is me and Lou don't cover money. We did, we did all of this on like credit cards and. Um, did you? You you took that. Yeah, personal, yeah, yeah. Not, that not personal hit yeah. instead of trying to go after funding. Yeah, and I think with the same with a crystal clear understanding that if we went bankrupt it didn't really matter because we didn't have anything um so <laughs> yeah which i don't recommend uh, as advice um is that you know if there's anybody listening to this that it's the wrong way to look at it but i think when i i was a i was a nightmare of a kid um you know i feel like i was a kid when i was 18 and 19 or whatever and and i was i just thought i was invincible so um so what did it matter and we wanted to take shows to london i remember we put a post-it note up and said do a west end show in five years we did it in three um you know um we and me and lou ran the office from his um from his bedroom so we so i would cycle like eight miles and then go and um yeah and and dream big about putting on shows and, and making work and taking shows to london and it which is weird because i was just some kid from rochdale you know he doesn't he hadn't really been to the theater too much but um but yeah, I felt really hard for it. So whereas Lou, you know, is an incredibly cultured version of myself and, and swears a lot less than I do. Um, that's how you tell the difference. He's, uh, I'd swear a lot. Um, and, uh, and, and he, you know, so he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about music and he taught me a lot about art and he taught me a lot as we went on. And I taught him a lot about swearing and drinking and riding motorbikes and stuff. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a good partnership. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and so we, we put on West Side Story and we took we took then a load more shows up to the Edinburgh Fringe and we've done loads we've done 60 odd shows up the Edinburgh Fringe now so um we've kind of given ourselves a bit of a break from it over the last few years but um yeah that was a real we really cut our teeth up at the Edinburgh Fringe and I think if you can get through that and and put on shows and make money then you can kind of do anything um, I think it's even harder these days than it was back when I was doing it and and that felt pretty impossible so so you, yeah. like you would really recommend doing something like yeah i don't know what would i recommend <laughs> um the, the incredible thing dominic cavendish um uh, uh, uh reviewer and 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 theater critic and and all-around good egg um uh, who i got to know only through lockdown really um uh, following gatsby's return to the stage and um and he pointed out something that sat with me uh, for a very long time since right in the thick of the pandemic he said you do realize brian that you the mischief theater guys um james c bright uh, katie lipson the people who are bringing shows back you're all the same class of the edinburgh fringe you know that right <laughs> and i had the penny had not dropped mm-hmm. and, I, and I, yeah, I include salador and that me and dave go way back when from, from the edinburgh fringe and 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 Gatsby, you know the belt up boys, um, uh, as as they were back then, um, and I think that says something about about the mindset of the people who came up through through the Edinburgh Fringe and through making work in really really hard places. And I think the the question wasn't new to us um, of like, are we going to survive this? You know, <laughs> that that felt like the most normal thing in the world i'm sure if you sat the mischief boys down or or any of the 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 people who were bringing shows back at the culture sector i think they would probably tell you the same thing that um yeah you know we we've we've faced this many times you know we stared down the barrel of bankruptcy many times we're not bothered about that <laughs> um, can we make good art and is good art important that that's the question so i think that um yeah it was a really interesting kind of moment i remember it really vividly sat in a boardroom um 
and and going no do you know what i hadn't noticed that so i think i think would i recommend it not <laughs> not from a personal point of view you exhaust yourself and it is <laughs> Uh, and you end up you know desperately unwell at the end of it because you've yeah. just not eaten and ran up hills perpetually for a month um mm -hmm. trying to drop off flyers and do weird and wonderful stuff but um there's nothing like it on the planet artistically there's nothing like it on the planet um it it really is um a melting pot of some of the finest and worst artists in the world and and that's incredible in itself and and the fact that nobody says no is beautiful um mm. you know so, I, think, I think you can learn a lot in a very short period of time doing yeah. different things. Um, yeah. Like I had a similar experience with like film festivals. I mean, I did Edinburgh as well, but film festivals, it's the same thing. You constantly move for numbers of weeks, learning from every single person you meet. Like, in my opinion, that's better than any kind of school experience. Yeah, and it's mad. I mean, even even these days, you know, when I go up to the Evan Fringe and, and just walk down the streets, I can't walk down a single street without seeing somebody from the past or something. You know, somebody comes over and says hello or shows that you've seen or been in. And, and that tells you a lot about the community up there and, and, and how that works. So I think it's really special, uh, you know, and I think about, I use that practice in my big West End theatre shows, you know, and, and how we save money and how we build sets and how we do stuff. I still, you know, I built a lot of sets at the palace. I went on to build sets and um, as kind of moonlighting while we were running Hearts on Hook in the early days, me and Louis both would do the get outs and, um, and fit ups and get outs at the palace theatre and the opera house in Manchester. And I still take a lot of that learning into to the production office to these days, you know, and, um, and, uh, yeah, I think somebody gave us a quote for a show floor of, of how many days it would take to, to lay down a show floor uh, the other month. And me and Louis just <laughs> looked at each other and laughed because we used to do that in a night. Yeah. And, and they wanted 10 days to do it. <laughs> and I was like, well, we know the game. You know, we've we've done it. Um, so I think that experience makes you a better producer and makes you a better, I think it makes you a better person. I, I think understanding... The like all the roles yourself certainly helps like, like yeah costume is still a mystery um <laughs> and directing is still a mystery i've no idea why anybody would want to be a director that blows my mind um I can't, <laughs> it terrifies me um uh, and and costume yeah i've never really understood wardrobe i think they're all magicians uh it's absolutely incredible um feats of uh of turning around costumes and fixing things and and getting it all to fit i, I really admire that it's something i know nothing about <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah but whereas yeah we we you know i still think to this day louis would be a world-class flyman and um, you know he's uh he was really really bloody good at that so yeah you learn as you go don't you yeah and you know what it, it sounds like like say with however many employees and how many productions you've got going on at the moment it does sound like like you're still very grounded in in kind of those early experiences and kind of taking that ethos forward yeah I mean we're a family company and mm. um and and I want to retain that forever you know we we are a family company and we um I have no interest in not in in being any different you know we've got a very open door policy if anybody kind of doesn't matter who you are in the company if you want to come up and have a chat or talk to me about your job or or I'll come and you know stick my head in anybody's office and um they're all sick of me but I'll, I'll come into everybody's office and sit and have a brew and check in on people and, and make sure they're all right and it keeps me on my toes as well you know and you learn things about 
the marketing companies and the ticketing companies and and stuff they've got a lot to teach us and and they've got a lot to learn as well i think they um uh simon delaney our director of marketing sits um, to my left hand side you know and, and i think that him moving out of marketing agency and into a production office i think he can see how these decisions get made for the first time mm-hmm. you know and it's hard you know that um, picking opening dates and announcement dates and stuff there's so many variable points that a marketing com- company doesn't necessarily see you know they, they, they they'll just get frustrated that when is it opening what's the show schedule and and uh, and, they, and they get to see it so yeah at what point did you go from okay we're producing one-off shows to okay we've got a fully-fledged company we're now going to start branching out into other areas into marketing into PR like what was going on at that time we turned 10 years old um it was a really arbitrary thing we turned 10 years old and we thought what's the next 10 years going to be um and <laughs> uh, and that was six years ago um or something um yeah I think it was about six years ago um and we we thought about the kind of the 10 years that we'd done and we'd done loads of shows and we traveled the world and we'd done loads of cool things. We only had about five, six employees um, at that point. And I think that we were really interested in running our own venues. One of the big things that we do is one of the big things that I guess changed the game for us is as the immersive theatre sector has grown, um, it has, uh, it's always been really obvious to me that um that when you put on a, a, a any theatre show, you're part of kind of a, a, an economy and an ecology and a kind of a living organism of finances that move around. And and the thing that you can normally never control is the venue. Um, and and that's the hardest thing, whether you get programmed, how long you run for, or how much it costs, all of those kind of elements to it sit within that venue. So we started running our own venues. Um, and that really kicked everything off because if you run your own venue, you definitely need to be in control of your own ticketing. And if you're in control of your own ticketing, you might as well be in control of your own marketing. Mm-hmm. And there are things that we thought, um, I think we we genuinely believe that we have something to offer the sector in all of those those points. You know, there's there's some things that we do with our ticketing company, Beth Roberts and, and Martin Barrow and Charmaine and um, and Alex. They're absolutely incredible people that, that work on our ticketing company. Um, they... Are really passionate about customer service and making sure that when you get a ticket to Gatsby, it's not just a little ticket. You get your invitation from Gatsby to one of his parties. When you book for Doctor Who, it's a, you know a letter from Unit telling you from the Doctor you, you're, you're going to be there. You know, just trying to make it a bit more special than um, than just you sat in you know D12. Um, please buy some popcorn. No, I, you know? I like that. It's it's almost it, it's very similar to like Disneyland. You know, where like the queues are part of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. part of the ride um you're you're just kind of expanding that um beyond it yeah and i think i think the immersive theater sector it's really fascinating to me because it offers something really special that traditional theater doesn't i'm still deeply passionate about traditional theater we put on a lot of shows i'm very proud of amelie and and um our small part in nine to five and and some of the kind of and choir of man i guess and the, the traditional shows that we do but i think that the immersive theater has got something really special you can make an audience feel like they matter so much more in an immersive theatre show than you can in a, um, a traditional theatre show. And I think that matters to me more and more, partly through the pandemic and what we've just been through and partly, uh, you know, as, as the artists that we are as producers, you know, it matters to me that an audience feel cared for and feel part of a narrative and they feel really important. I think that's something that, that I really care about. When did the 
I mean, a massive, a massive theatre is still new, I guess, um, in terms of commercial. Yeah, so is um, musical theatre. I was saying, I was talking about this the other day. Like, so is musicals, really, in my eyes. You know, it's as the Broadway and West End musicals that we've mm. known has only been knocking about for sixty years, and uh, and immersive theatre, I guess, as we know it, has only been knocking about for about fifteen years. So, um, yeah, I mean, we've been doing it for nine years now. Um, when, when did it kind of start catching your attention, and you were like, "Oh, this this is something I want to be a part it, of"? It's the companies that I still work with now. They're just they, they're just individuals. So. Um, it was a company called Belt Up at the Edinburgh Fringe um, way back when. And they made, the, made these incredible shows, Metamorphosis and uh, a, a series of work called The Red Rooms and um, some stuff that's kind of fringe legend, I guess, in, in, mm-hmm. in shows you wish you'd seen. And, um, and we were rival companies. I remember this really well. And Jethro won't mind me saying this. We were kind of rival companies because we, we had eight shows up at the Fringe and they had six shows up at the Fringe. We were all in C venues at the time. And uh, we were like, who are these belt up guys? And, uh, and I was walking up a flight of stairs and the fellow in front of me was carrying a big box of flyers and the bottom of the flyers went. Uh, so they spilled all the ways down these massive staircase. So I started putting them together and like, helping him pick them up. And, and it turned out that was Jethro Compton from Built Up Theatre. And, and he uh, he was like, oh, you're, you must be Hearts on Hook. Let's go for a beer. And we, we went for a pint together and got on really well. And, and I went to see their shows and I thought it was really brilliant work. And, and I kind of... I've always been slightly disinterested in putting an audience in a black box theatre or a West End theatre. I, I still am uh, slightly disinterested in it. I think it is, um, it's a weird thing to do to all sit quietly and pretend we're not there. Um, unless the, the art kind of fits that, you know, Amelie really suits that, but, um, but I think it's quite a strange thing to do. Um, and, uh, and I watched their shows. I thought, this is absolutely brilliant way of telling stories, you know, and that, and, is all very logical. Um, and, and then I met Alexander Wright, who I still work with all the time, and he directed and created Gatsby uh, with the original company. And and he was part of Belt Up, and he had a couple of shows that he was doing on his own and a piece called um, Some Small Love Story. And and it was f- a musical, but it was just four people stood in a line, no costume, no set, no props, no nothing. And it was just like a chamber musical, beautiful, um, with a score by a chap called Gavin Whitworth. and. Um, and I loved it. Uh, and I saw another show called Beulah that he created and I absolutely loved it. And I thought, God, pe- people need to see more of this work. And I think they're the, they're the first two shows that Hearts on Hook picked up that we weren't self-producing, that we that we, somebody had made. And we said, yes, yeah, do do you know we've got something to offer that. So we picked those up. And I think that, yeah, as I've gone on, I, I think um, they made an incredible Christmas carol which we've taken to the end, you know, to this to this massive stupid degree these days. Um, but it was originally, uh, I went to see it in a pub in York called um, uh, the Lamb and Lion, and it was about twelve audience members and two cast, and uh, and the interval rather than do the um, the Ghost of Christmas present. Um, uh, you go to the Fezziwig Ball, the door kicks open and food for these kind of 12 people comes in and we we share food together. And it mixed this really poignant, I remember it just clicking in my head that you can mix this really poignant like human being breaking bread with strangers with this classic mm-hmm. story that the narrative really matches the art that you're making. And, um, and audience members, you know, would come as perfect strangers and leave as best friends. You know, it was it was absolutely a remarkable show, and that 
that changed the way I make work and, and the way I think about work. And there's a few pieces that I've seen, a few theatre shows that I've seen that have, I've gone, yeah, do you know what? It's all about that. I want to do that. You know, and I, I'm like everybody else and everyone listens to this. I get inspired by stuff and I get excited about stuff and I get, um, I still am a giant kid when I go to the theatre, um, unless it's rubbish. Um, um, and, and I, yeah, so I, I still... I'm very fond of those kind of memories and those times where where I was feeling very formative. Um, mm. You know, I'm I'm a cantankerous, grumpy old man these days in comparison. Where I, I know what I like and and it works a bit like this and and it's the formula. But those seeds are what grew Gatsby. You know, and Gatsby's been running for six years, and those seeds are what grew Doctor Who's Time Fracture um, of of making an audience feel important. And I think immersive theatre can can really do that. Um, yeah, it's great. No, I mean. It's so true. You're part of it, not just watching it. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's the difference. You can watch, you know, you can watch um, Hamlet can be performed without any audience. You know, you can just bang it on, and and it's important. You know, I, uh, there's a, a company called Factory who do um, really impromptu Shakespeare, and it's it's gorgeous to watch. But it's it often is a bunch of actors who all know the lines, doing an improvised version of Shakespeare, and it's brilliant. And it needs no audience whatsoever. Um, our immersive shows are, are literally dead. If we don't have an audience, we don't exist. You know, you, you, there's a bunch of actors stood in a room looking at each other. Um, yeah, if you, whereas if you put an audience in that, you're at Gatsby's party and you can do deals and fall in love. And, you know, it, it's madness. I love it. Yeah. So in terms of you, just, just saying what you said there about audiences, like, does that change how you market it then, an immersive um show versus like a traditional end yeah yeah for sure for sure I mean and it I've compressed years of stressing about this question into into one thing I think one pithy little statement that I, I say time and time again to to our marketing teams and and whenever we start a show is like our immersive shows are not are not a show to see they're a thing to do our audiences are not choosing between going to Blythe Spirit or The Great Gatsby. They're choosing between Borley Ballison and The Great Gatsby or the new Pizza Pilgrims around the corner and The Great Gatsby. We're a very different mindset and there's millions more of those people, you know. I think so you're, an act, you're an activity. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that in no way diminishes the art. I think it's uh, you're you're um you're a night out. Um and and uh, and for people who are looking for a night out and it's a subtle difference but it means the world um and there are there's some really interesting audience data that came out of when we did the show in york and sheffield and and in um uh, in wales that um 50 of our audiences had never been to the theater before so to york theater royal or to theater Cluid. um and then 50% of those audiences, so 25% of everybody that walked through the door for The Great Gatsby in the six months that we ran it there, um, then went to York Theatre Royal. They then went to go and see a theatre show. So it's an incredible gateway drug um, for people so for art. So yeah. they've never seen a, a traditional theatre before. They, they they've not to been York... to the main theatres in their city, yeah. And then they went to this immersive theatrical experience and suddenly I was like oh let's go let's go see what the big fuss is about that's so interesting yeah and it and it's um and that has been a really important statistic and something that we've tried to follow you know wherever we've gone and I, I've tried to because Gatsby's a bit less 
unwieldy than some of the other immersive theater shows that we make you can move it you can pick it up and, and take yeah. it as long as you've got a long enough run that we've really tried to get it out into places that don't have immersive theater you know i think it was one of the first immersive shows to happen in york to any degree of scale anyway um to happen in York. Um, and it was happening around the same time as um, Witness to the Prosecution, actually, um, which is still running in London, you know. Um, and uh, so there's a few shows that I, um, that, that we really try and get out regionally and, and make sure that we, um, yeah, bring it to audiences. I think it's one thing to just point at London and say, everyone get on a train, you'll work it out later. But I didn't come from that. You know, there was no, there was no art like that available to me and and it changed my life <laughs> um, so we probably have a responsibility to go and do that um, which but is why it, i try is, is that constantly in your mind then it's like look i'm interested in doing productions completely regionally completely across the country it, it's definitely in my mind when we make a show is like what is our responsibility here and and shows like rotterdam have uh, have incredibly um obvious responsibilities i think um to to get out there to tour to be seen um shows like gatsby are slightly more nuanced reasons why we why we might push that show i think it's because access to that type of work is is very limited and and therefore you know how can we bring through the next generation of theater makers and immersive theater makers if we aren't willing to show and share with them that work and if it sustains itself then that's giving employment to people. And that's really important, especially at the minute. I mean, I've been banging that drum for years, but it's never been more important than it is now. And, you know, getting people back into work feels like a duty. You know, that feels like my, the, the only thing I can offer to the pandemic is to put myself as close as I possibly can to uh, to the front line of the culture sector and, and, and to give people as much work as I can. You know, that feels like my job. No, that's astonishing. Now, Doctor Who, I wanted to ask you about. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I understand if you can't say much, but I wanted to know, one, how did you get that um, IP? Because that is a big brand. It is, right? Um, <laughs> they, I, 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 it was just timing. Um, I had some big ideas about what to do with that property. And I, I, I'm a massive nerd, if that's not already entirely obvious. Um, and I play it's a your favourite doctor. Um, and I will judge you on this answer. Yeah, it's and it's Jodie Whittaker and Tom Baker. And I, I will stand by both of them to the death. Um, I, I absolutely love Tom Baker. We got to work with him and I felt like an absolute kid at Christmas. Um, during lockdown, we got to record with him and his voice still sends chills up my spine. I absolutely mm. love that. And I love, I, although... Um, you know, I, I uh, absolutely concede that that um, some of the writing and and some of the kind of direction of it has been questionable recently. But I just love Jodie, and she's been so wicked to work with as well. That was a really exciting thing. Yeah, and, and um, I bet you were like jumping up and down when the Russell T Davis. All of us were. Yeah, oh, I was yeah, just man. like yes. Big RTD back in the house. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I've got such admiration for that. And I, I think you know, I've got a big soft spot for Chris Eccleston because that's when I joined it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I, um, uh, and Matt Smith did an incredible job. See, so I think I'm not gonna lie, Matt Smith is my favorite. Yeah, yeah, fair, fair. And and they're all kind of valid. I think the, the gorgeous thing about that show is what I've tried to do, what I've tried, and Tom Maller and, and Dan Dingsdale and, um, and Becca Brower and all the kind of creatives on that show have tried to do is a love letter to, to anyone who loves Doctor Who. And, and hopefully, this is my, my challenge to you is, is like, come and see it. and. Um, and tell me on the final scene mm -hmm. that Doctor Who isn't cool. 
like there's no way you can watch that show get to the final scene on this really cool planet with these really cool things going on and tell me that Doctor Who isn't damn okay. cool I mean I already think it's freaking awesome <laughs> yeah yeah it's amazing there's just this Love moment it. we get and it's out there it's out there as well but we've got all 13 doctors in the show and there's a Do moment, you? yeah yeah and all 13 um have this kind of hero moment in the show and it is absolutely spine tingling like it's so cool um and there's not a dry eye in the house you know there's <laughs> everybody is it's so just a giant kid and I think that's one thing that I wanted to do with that property and I think probably the thing that got it across the line with the BBC is that I wanted to make something that was that that you could you know Patrick Chowton could be your doctor and this would still be really special for you 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 know um uh, that you can admire the whole canon through it because the first thing everybody asks you as you've done today the first thing everybody asks you is who's your favorite doctor yeah I really wanted to write a narrative that was um that included everybody really meaningfully, you know. And no, uh, I love that. Yeah, and and uh, the fugitive Doctor Ruth as well. I'm, um, so, you know, Joe Martin. I think is wicked. I loved that you know, that her getting dropped into the last season. I was like, yeah, that is exciting. Um, hopefully, she's my favourite Doctor. We'll, we'll see. I've got no idea. I wish I had some big intel for you. I've got no idea who Fourteenth is going to be. But um, oh, I know. But I am super stoked for it. Yeah, I've no idea, but I I can't wait for it. And we, um, yeah, we're we're really proud of that show and. Uh, and other people that make it and of the talent like Jody just just whipped out the bag and really got stuck in and everybody did everybody did, did, did. they did they help kind of form it I know they're just well but partly that their own um monologues and stuff yeah J- Jody definitely had input in that and 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 how she wanted the world to work and and the, the I mean the BBC have been incredible to work with they know they're not like any other licensor that I've ever worked with in that they know every beat of that show. Yeah. They've all been around it. They know every syllable, every everything that's happening. There's about 30 hours with the content that happens in that space. And um, it's incredible that they even have had the time to, to, to give us and gift us. Um, and they've been so involved. And there's a, a big shout out to a guy called Jeff Parker who works for the BBC. And, and he just got it immediately. He comes from a circus family and from a theatrical family. And as soon as I was like, probably the coolest thing is to, you know, put the audience in their own version of, of Doctor Who, their own episode of Doctor Who. And he was like, yeah, I, I get it. Let's do it. Yeah. And, it, and he, um, he, yeah. So he's been absolutely instrumental in, in just, helping and being this kind of conduit and there's a chap called James Goss who does loads of the writing um uh, at the BBC and on uh, he was kind of led on the time Lord Victorious um storyline and he was I mean we were on the phone every other hour <laughs> while making that show so um it, it it really has like the DNA of Doctor Who through it and and that has been really special so I think that's a kind of a two-way street I think they found they found us as licensors and we're like, yeah, we really want to work with you because of the way you tell stories. And we found them and it, in bringing out the kind of artists that they are and saying, yeah, you know, I know I get that your job is to write the contracts or whatever, but like, what do you want to do with this show? And how do you care about this? And, oh, um, and what really matters to you? And um, yeah. And, and there's, yeah, just been some, it's been a remarkable journey and we did it all in the middle of COVID. Like it was at the absolute height really? of, yeah, the whole show was made. The whole show was built, physically built. Um, we could only have 30 construction crew on site at any one time. And uh, there were one way systems to drop the set off. Yeah, it was mad, but it felt like a, it felt like you were like marshalling an army against, <laughs> against COVID. It was incredible. It. it sounds yeah. like a really special collaboration to be honest. Yeah, it was, it was. And there wasn't, 
and we'll never get that again. You know, we had a year and a half of of everybody's focus on one show, and we'll never get that again. Um, well, I cannot wait to experience it. Yeah, it's wicked. It feels like it's had a year and a half worth of people staring at it. You know, every little mm-hmm. bit, every detail, every drawer that you open, every interaction you have, you know, um, is thickly layered in kind of law and that's mostly because we were all we had nothing else to hope for you know we were all just running at doctor who oh it's so exciting yeah it was cool yeah really cool so taking kind of all you've said about your own experiences together and and still kind of having your feet firmly on the ground in terms of making um a, a proper career for people um if, if someone came up to you and it's like Brian look I, I, th- I think I want to be a producer um like where do you start what what would you say to them I think the uh, and we I get this all the time you know and I, I um I try wherever possible to to really help out and to get stuck in and 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 have those conversations and I do workshops and things on it as well but but I think the thing that that the thing that drove me and therefore kind of my only reference point is like why and what what do you want out of it because if it's fame and glory and money <laughs> go work yep. in oil man yeah don't don't go work in renewable energies don't work in oil go re- work in renewable energies um but if if you want to graft and make art and be an alchemist in in that kind of creative process and and be the because uh, a lot of it is thankless you know producing is is very it's a, uh, if it wasn't for louis i think i'd find it a very lonely mm. uh, i say louis i mean my whole producing office these days but um i was just thinking back into the day i'd find it a very lonely experience because you know if you um even if you win even if you're smashing it um you're uh you're at the mercy of so many other forces and, and the game is always what's next and what, you know, how you're going to do that. And so it never stops. I think it is one of the most rewarding, fulfilling lifestyles um, you, you could possibly imagine because you surround yourself constantly by stories you want to tell and, and the ways that you want to tell them. And you're very much a master of your own destiny. Um, so I think with that in mind, you need to be very clear about, what you want to do and why you want to do it. And I ask myself constantly and I drill it into all my team and, and to everybody that I work with is um, what, what's the best way to tell that story? And it sounds like a really simple thing, but I constantly, every juncture and every decision that I'm trying to make is, is this the best way to tell that story? Is that, is, you know, um, why are the audience here and, and what is the best way to tell that story? Um, whether that's choice of sound designers or directors or whether that's, you know, somebody has asked for the, production overspend of 400 quid in order to get a bit of technical equipment or whatever you know whatever it is you're kind of constantly going right what's the best way to tell that story and why why are we doing that um and there were some i was talking to a, a load of students the other day and um and somebody had this really neat show uh, that they wanted to put together uh, called wonderful world of dissociate which I, I just happened to know a load about but it's this time you know it's, it's pretty niche um and it was wicked just to hear somebody somebody else who you know clearly wants to be a producer and clearly has that passion um with the show that they want to do and the politics behind it of why they want to do it and what they were like yeah well, you're already producing mate you don't need, you don't need me um, just do know, it yeah you're already on don't don't let uh, you know um 
some idiot like me tell you what to do. I think I think you've got to be driven by your heart. And there's loads of advice and things. I, you know, James Seabright has written a load of cracking books that I think of, you know, that do the theory really well and are really helpful. But um, if you don't have that kind of core instinct to um, of what is right and what you know what what art is going to be good and enjoyed by the audience because they are not necessarily the same thing um uh, then then i think you you know uh, you're off to a bad start whereas if that's in your bones and you're thinking about the stories that you want to tell and stories that people want to hear um even you know that doesn't mean that they need to be fluffy art you know it could be the most hard-hitting thing in the world um uh, I, I find london fascinating as well one of the things that i try and try and talk to um, up and coming producers about is you're, you're playing a game of odds in London you know six million people here however many million people here and um, uh, are you going to find 250 of those a night that want to go get dressed up in 1920s gear in Charleston yeah probably now go and get them <laughs> that's the job go and find them you know and and let them know you're here and make it good art um can you find 250 people a night that want to hear um monologues about how difficult it's been in the coronavirus yeah it's gonna be harder but yeah for sure out of six million people of course you will um so i, I think you're playing a game of odds in london that you don't do in other cities um so you need to communicate you need to learn that and you need to make art that's worthy of talking about you know i think choir man does that really well and um, it's really worth talking about you know that you go and kind of watch that show and you think yeah wicked bit of theater some great politics it's, it makes you laugh makes you cry but at the end of the day you kind of can't leave that theater without talking about it talking mm -hmm. about feelings and emotions and and how you feel and uh yeah and what is masculinity and mental health and you know really important stuff which is in essence is just nine lads singing at you um you know to be able to to take something that has that core and turn it into um you know a conversation about um uh the fragility of male masculinity and mental health is really important stuff you know and, and that definitely has its place so i think find that art that makes you inspired and and and, and know why you want to give it to an audience and then get on with it don't let the fear stop you yeah, like you're never going to get anywhere if you if I had listened to the voice in my head that said it wasn't possible and and you know and I had huge um, uh, imposter syndrome, mm. um, you know, and and that, that never really goes away. When I won the Olivier, it didn't go away. My uh, and this is an important thing to tell. Anybody coming up, my Olivier is in my best mate's house. It's on his mantelpiece. I, I couldn't have it in my house. It felt like a weird thing um, to have because I'm a lad from Rochdale who makes it. And, and, and that was a very strange day in my life. But um, but the the job is not to sit and stare at your awards cabinet. The job is to crack on and make theatre shows. And I'm hugely grateful for that step. Um, and it opened a lot of doors to me that would definitely otherwise be closed. But it, it felt like a very strange thing um you know so don't don't um yeah don't don't think i don't have those thoughts as well you know and, and i'm at the top of my game and i spend some time going bloody hell how do i even do this <laughs> you know um, yeah and yeah but i think that's important that's about being people right and i think everyone gets that and i think if you don't 
if you aren't honest with yourself about that, then then you're in real trouble. You know, if you're honest about yourself about that, and you you know, me and Louis constantly pick each other up and dust each other off, and yeah. and 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 there's all my producing team do it as well. You know, this this is a game of um, of marathons. You know, and, and yeah. you after each other. Right, amazing. I th- I think there's going to be some real real words of wisdom to to put together there. Um, no, a pleasure. Thanks very much. Not a problem. Good luck with Doctor Who. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Bad Mad podcast. Please subscribe to check out the next episode or leave a review if you liked it. You can find us on Instagram at goodbadmad or at goodbadmad.com for additional resources and information. See you next time.